Hello and welcome to Behind the Breakthrough, the podcast all about groundbreaking medical research and the people behind it at Toronto's University Health Network, Canada's largest research and teaching hospital. I'm your host, Christian Cote, and joining us on the podcast today, Dr. Sonia McParlin, award-winning scientist at UHN's Toronto General Hospital Research Institute, whose pioneering work to map the liver was a world first and is now triggering a paradigm shift in liver research and therapy. Dr. Sonia McParland, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Let's frame your work first by starting with the big picture, if you don't mind, Sonia. If you could just give us a sense of the scope and burden of liver disease in Canada. So liver disease is a very serious problem in Canada. It's estimated that one in 10 people in Canada are suffering from liver disease. So that means they either have things like hepatitis B virus, hepatitis C virus, fatty liver disease, autoimmune liver disease, or liver cancer. And so the problem is, is that unlike other organs, there's no machine that's available to replace the function of the liver, which has hundreds of functions, including metabolizing food, creating clotting factors, and clearing toxins from the blood. And so in these patients who develop liver disease, in some cases, the only option is liver transplantation. And that leads to a huge problem because of the fact that there are not enough organs available. So up to 25 to 30% of patients who need a liver transplant will not come off the waiting list due to a lack of organs. So Sonia, when you first entered the field, how well understood was the liver itself? So that's a great question. So there were some very elegant and beautiful studies that had already been done on the liver, and they used the most advanced techniques that were available at that moment. So we knew from histology, which is looking at the patterns of the cells, and we also looked from different assays using biopsies from the liver that there were hepatocytes that make up the liver, and they're kind of the workhorses of the liver. Hepatocytes? Hepatocytes. Okay. And these cells are the, the workhorses of the liver. About 80% of the liver is, is made up of these hepatocytes. And so they're the ones that are pumping out these clotting factors. They're the ones that are secreting factors that break down fats. But they're also supported by cells that are not hepatocytes, and they were also described in the liver. But the way that the liver had been described, if I can use uh, this as an analogy, was almost like a smoothie. So what you would do when people were mapping the liver is they'd take a tiny piece of the liver and they would mash it up or what we call homogenize it. And then they would look at the different patterns within that tissue. So we're looking at the RNA at this point. So that would tell us what messages and what functions are in those cells and what those cells are. But if you can imagine, if you blend up a smoothie and that smoothie is mostly made up of banana and there's a little bit of blueberry in there, it's going to taste like a banana smoothie. And so what we were seeing was an overwhelming signature from hepatocytes. And so you'd know a lot about hepatocytes, but not so much about the support cells, like the immune cells and the endothelial cells that are a very small proportion of the cells in the liver, but are thought to have a very important function. So, you know, we want to kind of take things from that understanding of the liver as, you know, the most overwhelming signature within the liver to looking at even the small rare populations within the liver. So this knowledge gap of this smaller group, uh, aside from the majority of hepatocytes, 
that's sort of the knowledge gap that you wanted to tackle then with your research? Absolutely. So we wanted to know what are the different populations of the cells within the liver. And, and from there, we really wanted to look even deeper into subpopulations of these cells, because you can have a population of cells within the liver that has multiple functions. And one of the neat things about the liver, it's very unique. The liver has an amazing regenerative capacity. So it's, it's, it's quite amazing that you can cut off you know, 75% of the liver and it will grow back. And so there are cells that can support that regenerative process. But in these patients that have end-stage liver disease, there are also cells that have these regenerative abilities, but they're not able to perform their function because there are kind of dueling cells that are inflammatory. So they're kind of fighting against the regeneration. So you kind of need a, a... not so much a balance, but you really have to have regeneration prevailing in the liver for the liver to be fully healthy. So tell us how you set about the process of trying to determine what are these minority cells, so to speak, in the liver that were not well understood. Mm -hmm. What we wanted to do or what we did was we wanted to take the cells to a single cell level. So what we wanted to do is separate the very small cells from the larger cells, the hepatocytes from the endothelial cells that line the vessels of the liver. And then we also wanted to pull the immune cells out and they're kind of sitting between cells and in the the little tiny blood vessels of the liver. And so we knew if you used a biopsy and crushed up the tissue, you wouldn't be able to see these cells very distinctly. So what we wanted to do was we wanted to introduce very gentle reagents that could go into the tissue's own vasculature and then would just kind of gently tease these cells apart. And so what that allows you to do is tease them apart to the point that they're released, but they're still healthy and viable. And so then what we could do is use something called single cell RNA sequencing, which instead of taking the RNA profile, so the genes that are expressed in the whole tissue, we looked at the genes that are expressed in the individual cells. And what knowing that gene signature does is it tells us what the cell is and what some of its functions are. Like explain to us how you were pulling this process off in terms of what were you performing your tests on or your research on? Yeah, so that is the most exciting part of this whole project. So, you know, as a team, we kind of sat down and said, where is this gap? So we knew actually a lot about mouse liver. We knew things about rat liver, but we didn't know very much about human liver. And this is because it's very difficult to obtain human tissue that is able to be perfused with those enzymes that I was talking about. So these These are the reagents that help disrupt the, the junctions between the cells, but in a very gentle way. So, you know, within the program at UH, the transplant program at UHN, we had uh, my surgical colleague, Dr. Ian McGilvery, was able to, as part of his transplant technique, was actually removing the caudate lobe um, to provide access for the liver transplant surgery. So he was able to take these tiny pieces of discarded human tissue, um, sew them off, and then we would transport them to the lab cannulate them with any exposed vasculature that might exist, and then gently introduce these enzymes in to dissociate this tissue so that we could just very, very gently release those cells. Because the unique thing about the liver is that 
not all the cells are equal in their ability to respond to things like chopping and, and dissociating. For example, hepatocytes, because I mentioned earlier, they're very regenerative. You know, they can be replaced very quickly. So they're fine with if there's a situation of stress with those cells dying because they know they're going to be replaced. So they're very sensitive to any kind of stress because as a cell, they're very quickly replaced. So what we had to kind of work towards is making sure we didn't disrupt the hepatocytes while dissociating them enough to release them. Because what we really want to have is a complete map because using this technology, we can look at the, the way the cells interact with each other, not the individual populations. Because again, we're always looking towards how we can use this as a benchmark for disease. So eventually, what we want to do is be able to compare our healthy map to our disease map to find those strange populations that pop up in disease, or populations that are not present in disease that could be mediating, you know, this balance in the liver, or cells that should be communicating to each other that just stop communicating to each other during disease. Quick sidebar here on process, because this may be instructive to others. There must have been some ethical issues you were dealing with in terms of taking a portion of a, a removed liver due to transplant to be able to test on and research? Like, how did you even come up with that idea in the first place? Well, this is discarded tissue, and this was discarded tissue during the transplant procedure. And so, you know, for years and years and years, that tissue was just being binned. So the idea was, well, you know, can we take this tissue and can we look at this tissue and use it to understand really what a healthy liver looks like? Right. I'm wondering, was there ethical issues or REB standards that had to be achieved or permissions gotten for that? Certainly. So for any human research, there has to be ethical approvals and REBs. So take us back to the first testing that you started to do of this human tissue of the liver. What was the process? Right. So the process was quite interesting because we would take the tissue to a single cell level and then we would have to determine whether our soup of cells was the right soup. Because if you dissociate the tissue too much and too, too harshly, you'll actually kill off all the hepatocytes. If you do it too gently, then you won't release cells from the tissue that needs to be included in the map and that would have, make an important part of that map. And so when we first started dissociating the tissue, we actually would dissociate it to the point that the hepatocytes would die. So we would have this liver that we knew when we went into the assay that this was a beautiful liver and it would come out looking like an immune organ. It was just all the rare cells. We wouldn't see a lot of the hepatocytes. And so then we knew we had to tweak those techniques to bring it down to a more gentle dissociation. The other thing as... And just when you say dissociation, you mean essentially teasing out these exactly. less known cells yeah. Yeah. apart from the hepatocyte cells. Exactly. And the thing about single cell technologies and single cell transcriptomics is it's not very forgiving. If a cell is damaged, it will have a very clear damage signature and the genes that you can detect are very low. So, you know, at the beginning, we would see a lot of 
dead cells. And the interesting thing that we saw was that, you know, the typical techniques to remove those dead cells would actually totally change our map. So every time we would manipulate the cells at all, we would lose some of those cells. And then all of a sudden the map would seem skewed the wrong way. Because we always would have a slice of tissue that we can look at under the microscope to make sure, you know, is this all lining up? So once you teased out the hepatocytes, what did you discover? So what we discovered was that the liver, as expected, was made up of 80% hepatocytes, but then we found that there was 20 cell populations in total within the liver. And what we saw were we were able to take five healthy human livers and look at 8,444 cells within the liver. And we found populations along with the hepatocytes, which was expected, we found populations of endothelial cells that line the little tiny blood vessels within the liver. We found different populations of immune cells, so cells like T and B cells within the liver. We found small cells that make up the bile duct called cholangiocytes. We also found populations of macrophages. So macrophages, if I can describe them as the eaters of the liver. So these are cells that have all kinds kinds of receptors to scavenge things. So if you eat a fatty meal, if there's some bacteria coming from your gut, they're the ones that are clearing all these bugs in the liver, and they're actually able to clear them quite well themselves. But the interesting thing that we found was that the macrophages, it was previously thought that there was a type of macrophage in the liver called a Kupfer cell. And that was how you described liver macrophages. And what we found was that in the healthy liver, there are actually two different types of macrophages. There's the macrophages that are your typical kind of Kupfer cells, which have properties that are very regenerative. And then there's another population that are more inflammatory within the liver. So we kind of opened up an understanding of that there are more than one population of these eaters within the liver. So of all these components of the non-hepatocyte portion of the liver what emerged for you in terms of what was the story there what was there some was there things that you learned that you didn't know certainly so the story really started to coalesce around the macrophages and we were very excited about macrophages because within different models of liver failure and liver disease for example there are models in which you can promote regeneration by cutting off half the liver. It's called a habitectomy model. In animals where you first take away all the macrophages, those livers don't grow back as quickly. So you can tell that they really suggest that macrophages have clear regenerative properties. And so we were very interested in focusing on these as maybe in a healthy liver, you know, we may have more of these than in a diseased liver. So we really wanted to look at the macrophages because of their clear role in liver disease. For example, if you have a liver tumor uh, or if you have a tumor period and it's surrounded by macrophages that are very immunoregulatory, that's a really bad sign, you know, because they'll quiet the T cells around those tumors and prevent them from responding to antigens. And we know within the liver there can be 
tumors. It's called hepatocellular carcinoma. And we know that in livers that have liver cancer, there are quite a lot of macrophages that have these immunoregulatory properties. So again, the end goal is to use these maps to really understand what's happening in disease and whether we can reprogram the liver, a diseased liver to become more like a healthy liver. So we were very interested in the fact that these macrophages had these two different properties. There were these inflammatory and non-inflammatory macrophages just by their RNA signature. So the genes that we could pick up from those individual cells. So we wanted to take it a step further. We wanted to look using pathway analysis to see what pathways were most active in each of these populations. What we found was in the immunoregulatory macrophages, they did have pathways active in cytokine suppression. And then the inflammatory macrophages, they had pathways active in response to bacteria and response to different types of microbes. So tell us, Sonia, how does your map now inform future research? Yes, the map is actually informing future research by really providing a rich benchmark for different groups to compare either their studies of liver disease or their efforts to generate different types of cells to repopulate a liver. For example, I'm part of a medicine by design team here at UHN, and what they're doing is they're developing different cells like hepatocytes, endothelial cells, and cholangiocytes from stem cells. And what they want to do is they want to take those stem cells and use those to repopulate a liver of someone with acute liver failure. But what you really need to know before you go from these cells into a patient or an animal model is how close can those cells get to something that you would find in a human liver. It's also part of a global initiative to really understand all human organs from at a single cell level. So this is part of a greater project called the Human Cell Atlas Initiative. And the mission of this initiative is to understand the building blocks of all the organs in the body across different countries, across different ages and ethnicities. For example, if you incorporate multiple different maps into a single map, you can look at the differences, for example, in sex. And the reason that that's so important from the liver's perspective or from the perspective of someone working in liver disease is that there are liver diseases such as primary sclerosing cholangitis that in fact impact men more than women. As well, there's primarily biliary cholangitis, and that impacts women more than men. So one of the things that, you know, this map is helping to do is helping build a greater understanding of the liver so that, you know, we can understand the differences between health and disease in young people, in older people, in women and in men. It seems like a paradigm shift in terms of the study of the liver. How does this, though, then translate to, say, at the patient level in terms of, say, a treatment? That's a really good question. So one of the things that, you know, we're finding with single-cell RNA sequencing is we can take a biopsy from someone's liver, and we can look at individual cells that make up that biopsy. And so ideally, you know, we always approach our research with a big question and then little questions. So the big question is, you know, how can we understand the liver so that we can reprogram the liver so that people do not need a transplant. So some of the ways you could do that is if that patient's liver shows that a particular pathway is very, very active, you could repurpose a drug that's already existing to reprogram that liver and to change that pathway or to get that patient over the 
hump of that, you know, severe liver injury so that the regenerative processes start again. So understanding individual livers at an individual level could, you know, conceivably lead to individualized treatment for liver disease. And is this simply a case where you say you take a biopsy and you discover it's a diseased liver and that you could hold it over your map of a healthy liver and right away be able to pinpoint what is wrong with that unhealthy liver? In theory, yes. In practice, it requires very detailed bioinformatic work to you know, remove any batch issues and to correct for any differences that might just be due to processing. And this is something that is being really spearheaded by my research colleague, Dr. Gary Bader at University of Toronto. So they're understanding how different ways that you process the tissue or, you know, when you use different, for example, chemistries, how you can exactly impose those maps. So that's called, you know, batch correction and integration. And there's all these amazing tools that have even popped up since we published that original paper that are allowing that exact thing to happen. And your paper came out in 2018, if I'm not mistaken? Yes. Congratulations. Who do you call in a moment like that when you've got a world first mapping of the liver? <laughs> well, there was a lot of excited calls to my my main research partners. So that's Dr. Ian McGilvery, who's you know a completely dedicated transplant surgeon, and Dr. Gary Bader, who is a, a brilliant bioinformatician. But uh, you know, it's it's such a big question in liver disease that it was actually interesting. You get emails after the paper, kind of saying thank you for answering this question or thank you for taking the time to do this because this question has been bugging me for so long. And so, you know, you call those people, the people that, you know, that have been really bugged by the fact that for all this time, you know, we just didn't know the cells that make up a liver. Certainly our understanding of the cells that make up the liver will grow as we incorporate more patients into the map and we can expand to, you know, look at pediatric liver. We look at male versus female liver, but really it's a very great starting point. Yeah. So it was very exciting. I certainly called up my, my PhD mentor because we would sit in meetings and, you know, we would use the blood as a surrogate for what was happening in the liver. And so anytime you presented a conference, the last question would always be what's happening in the liver. And the question from the PhD defense committee was always what's happening in the liver. So, you know, it's a question that's been bugging a lot of people in liver for a long time. Well, congratulations. I understand also uh, you've made this discovery open access. What does that mean? Like, how does that impact research? And why did you do that? We believe very strongly in publishing things open access so that people have access to all the materials, have access to all the code and all the methods, no matter where they are, and without them even having to contact us. Often they'll fire us off an email, but we really want to share this as widely as possible so that if researchers don't have the ability to access healthy tissue because they're not in a city where there's a transplant center, but they're in a city where they're biopsying patients for a very rare liver disease that's very geographically centered, they can use this as their guide. And so it's very important for us to understand science is only going to push forward the field if it's being shared and it's being used. And um, we're part of the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. We're funded by the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. And, and one of the big things that this initiative really pushes as well, and we totally 
agree with that and very much believe in it is, is sharing science as openly as possible. So we even share methods and protocols and data pre-publication. I'm curious, how do you know you have captured or isolated every single cell in the liver? How did you know like you could stop counting? So we don't. The very simple answer is we don't. And so when we have a scientific question and we've answered it in 2018, that's to the best of our knowledge in 2018, but we're always going to be building on this. For example, you know, we're building out our MAP 2.0. There'll be more patients. They'll be stratified by age and sex. We'll use more techniques to look at these different tissues to really pull out other subpopulations. But one thing we thought about as a team is at what point should we share this data? And when we found that all five livers were clustering on top of each other and there was some very clear scientific messages from that, we said, you know what, we'll share this now and then we'll just keep building And at some point, the data could be replaced by other data, or, you know, we could even add additional populations. But we're fine with that because we've moved the field forward. I'm curious, what makes the liver so difficult to understand that we didn't have this information? The liver is a very difficult organ to look at, first of all, because when you take tissue out of a liver, as opposed to taking tissue out of a spleen or taking cells out of the blood, the tissue in the liver is very sensitive to any kind of stress. It's because of the fact that the liver regenerates and has this huge regenerative capacity. And so because it has this great regenerative capacity, if there is a liver injury, those cells know actually we can die, we know we're gonna be replaced. So they're very sensitive to any stress cues from within the tissue. So normally if you took an organ to a single cell level, you would mince that tissue. But what you really have to do with a liver is you have to introduce enzymes and very gently tease that liver apart. The other thing is it's very difficult to obtain healthy liver tissue. You have to be part of a transplant center. You have to have a fully engaged transplant team. And by saying engaged, it's not just kind of lip service engaged. These transplant surgeons would have to actually add time to their transplant in order to get that tissue to you. And they would have to really be thinking hard about that because if the communication is not there and that tissue sits on a backbench for eight hours, that tissue also is very sensitive to dying, you know, without any manipulation. So there needs to be kind of a perfect storm of having this technology, having a way to take the tissue apart and having this amazing team that's really so fully engaged in research that at 11 o'clock at night, when that liver is coming in, they'll fire off a text and get the whole thing moving while they're already planning their 12 hour surgery. So it's a very unique team and a very, unique ability that you don't really find in a lot of places. So Sonia, in preparation for speaking with you, I came across a question you asked in response to a question about the purpose of your research. You said, quote, how can we get the liver back to a normal state, unquote? How, how close are you to answering that question? Yeah, that's a great question. It is a question that really guides my research, and it's part of that big question that we ask. So the the simple answer is it's a good step in that direction. So in order for us to understand how we could reprogram, we need to know the gold standard. Where do we want to end up? And so, you know, it's one of those steps in that 10-year process to understand here's our gold standard, 
here's our expanded gold standard, here's what we're seeing in disease, and then using some of these brilliant drug discovery pathways or, or techniques that, for example, Gary Bader has developed, we can then find out which pathways we can use and how we can repurpose drugs to then reprogram that liver. But all this information is building towards understanding how these diseases look different than healthy and how can we either remove a population that seems to be mediating disease or how can we shift that population to become more regenerative? You're listening to Behind the Breakthrough, the podcast all about groundbreaking medical research and the people behind it at Toronto's University Health Network, Canada's largest research and teaching hospital. I'm your host, Christian Cote, and today we're speaking with Dr. Sonia McParlin, whose pioneering research led to mapping the liver, a world-first discovery that has triggered a paradigm shift in liver research and therapy. Dr. McParlin's work is supported in part by the Toronto General and Western Hospital Foundation. So, Sonia, you're born and raised in St. John's, Newfoundland. Your dad was a chef, your mom a social worker, and I understand they nurtured your interest in science and medicine from an early age. Like, take us back to, I understand it's age six, and a coloring book of encyclopedias? Yes, so my brothers and sister and I, we had this encyclopedia set, and they were color pictures. We couldn't even read them at that point. So our parents would read them to us, and it was about values, but it was featuring all these different scientists. And the, I mean, the one that really struck me was Marie Curie, and it was the value of learning. And so it just really struck me that in her discovery of radioactivity, she lived a life of curiosity and constant learning. And it seemed like that kind of a life would be very exciting and very fulfilling. But you're in elementary school. Like you can remember connecting to that feeling of curiosity when you were what, age six? Absolutely. I broke a lot of toys by taking them apart and trying to do things with them. So let's jump forward. Your recruitment to UHN, what attracted you to come here? I was attracted to the scientific climate at UHN. It is so unique. And the way that the UHN and the transplant program values basic science and clinical collaborations was absolutely amazing. The energy, the amount of interest in really great and functional collaborations was was amazing to me. You can't really quantify the excitement that exists when there are people that are just able to sit down and talk about science for hours. And this was something that really drew me to the UHN. Also, you know, it's a fantastic transplant program with unparalleled access to tissue. And really within the Institute themselves, they have a fantastic genomics core where, you know, if there is something that's going to come through the pipeline, it's going to be first adopted at the Princess Margaret Genomics Center. So it was just such an exciting possibility to work alongside these just extremely dedicated and brilliant scientists and clinicians. You are a pure researcher, correct? You work mm-hmm. in a lab all day. What, what keeps patients top of mind for you? Within the the setup of UHN, actually, the hospital and the research institute are very intertwined. So you will literally be sitting down in the Starbucks at Toronto General, and you'll be having a research discussion with your collaborators, with your students, and patients will come up and 
thank the surgeon for, you know, how well they feel. And, you know, they're beaming. They speak specifically about how their quality of life has improved. I guess on the other side, you can see the patients when they're not having a great day and they're coming to ask for advice for their loved one or for themselves. And then every day you kind of see what your goal is and how important it is to be doing this research. And yet the rigor of science demands time. How do you reconcile this urgency to come up with cures and better treatments for patients with the time it takes for science? That is a tough one. So, you know, what we really have to do is set long-term goals. And obviously the long-term goal is to reduce those people that die on the waiting list. But then understanding scientifically, you have to make these steps and, you know, make these discoveries that are going to lead you to that appropriate goal. So you have to set short-term goals and long-term goals and understand that you can keep your eye on the prize, understanding that everybody would like to have the ability to, you know, reach those goals much faster. I'm curious though, do you ever feel pressure? I feel a lot of pressure, but it's really good pressure. I feel it, you know, as I mentioned, from seeing the patients, from seeing their families, from seeing right in front of me how severe liver disease can be, and also from knowing the fact that there are a lot of patients that will not come off the transplant waiting list. That, that's a good pressure. I also feel pressure being part of such a dynamic team where everyone is just really thoughtfully engaged in research and and looking at that goal from different perspectives. So you feel like you need to really pull your weight. And then the third type of pressure, of course, is that I have all these brilliant and wonderful students that are trusting me with their graduate program and that I need to make sure that I'm really there for those students and really guiding them in the same way that I've been guided. So lots of pressure, but good pressure. What makes you think you can improve things? I am an absolute optimist. And the other thing is, I just think that, you know, when you're surrounded by such brilliant people who really are constantly immersed in the literature and really understand the scope of disease, and that they're all sitting in the same room. And so everyone's discussing everything very openly. And, you know, no one's kind of protecting their research niche. That is probably the best possibility or the best environment in which you're going to find something innovative or you're going to find something unique or you're going to really make the best use of your time, your skills, your energy. So I think that's extremely exciting and positive. And I think if there is a way to improve things for patients with liver disease, it's by just assembling the absolute best team. And, and I think that that's what we've done. We, we find it instructive to ask all our scientists how they deal with failure. What's your roadmap when you encounter dead ends or challenges in your research? So I encounter dead ends all the time. I think the most important thing is to, and I I tell this to my lab as well, is to understand all the rationale for taking each step along the way. And then being able to trace your steps back to where you kind of diverted from your scientific question or where you kind of had to refine things. So, you know, I think in science, you have to take risks. If you have a good rationale, you do have to take risks and understand that experiments can fail. As long as it's a well thought out and well rationalized experiment 
or decision, then I think that failure is just part of the process. I think it's important to share failures. I think it's important to be like very clear about the fact that nobody succeeds without failures. But uh, I think it's part of the process. I know you credit great mentorship as part of the foundation for your success. How do you now approach being a mentor yourself? Yeah, so I take that very seriously. Like you said, you know, I do credit mentorship for really getting me to where I am. And I think that part of my responsibility having received such great mentorship is I need to pay it forward. And so the way I like to mentor my students is by understanding as much as possible about their goals, about where they've come from, where they want to go, and how I can stay out of their way and push them along. Is there any kind of secret sauce to how you inspire possibility within your lab team? I tell them that everything's on the table, absolutely everything. If they want to go across the street and train in someone else's lab, I'll make that happen. If they want to try a new technique, then we sit down and we workshop it as a team. So, you know, as openly as possible, we discuss what their roadmap is, why they want to ask that question. And then we also, as a team, take responsibility for if that experiment fails. And again, what I try and tell the students, as as I've been told before, it's not about whether the experiment worked or didn't work. It's about whether we can learn from the experiment or we can learn from the failure. What's your career journey advice then to young scientists, those thinking of entering the field or early career? My career advice to those people are one of the things that is most fulfilling about being a scientist and having this career is that you're allowed to mentor students. And even if a scientist is very busy, they will take time and they really get a lot out of providing advice and providing mentorship or, or listening because they've been in your shoes. And so one thing I've told grad students, postdocs is, you know, if there's someone that you want to talk to and you think their perspective is important, you know, fire them off an email, ask them to have a coffee with you. No one is ever going to say no to a coffee and they will enjoy it. You know, as a PhD student, I would not approach someone because I was like, they're very important. They're very busy. And what I try and tell my students is no one is too busy or important to have a coffee with a student. They'll enjoy it. They like to share it. They, they remember what it's like to make mistakes and they do want to prevent other people from doing it. So I tell students, you know, reach out to anyone and any, anybody because it's part of their passion is mentoring students and kind of guiding them along the way. There's a author, Simon Sinek, who says people don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. So why do you do what you do, Sonia? The simple answer is because someone will let me. I think that the being able to do science, and I've said this lots of times, being able to do science and being able to discover on a daily basis and to learn together on a daily basis is a gift. It's a wonderful gift and it's a very fulfilling lifestyle and a very exciting lifestyle. And the fact that I'm able to do this and work with these brilliant students and work with these brilliant scientists and see these wonderful patients is just so fulfilling. And so, and I'll keep doing it until uh, they tell me I have to stop. (laughs) Well, hopefully no one does, given your track record. You know, I remember in our pre-interview when we were talking about 
those coloring book encyclopedias and you said part of what attracted you to the world of science was the possibility to make a discovery that no one else had ever done. And you've done that. What, what does that mean to you? It feels like it's just the first step along the way and that, you know, plenty of people will continue to make discoveries, but it feels nice that this data, this process, this information will help move the field forward and will help kind of push not only our discoveries, but other discoveries. So it does feel like we're really contributing, which is the goal of every scientist is to be able to contribute, to be able to help people along with their questions as well. And so it's pretty cool. It is. What's next for you? So there's a lot. There's a lot of questions, obviously, that that need to be answered. As I mentioned earlier, you know, we really want to understand the liver more deeply. So we want to understand what makes a healthy child's liver healthy. What does an adult liver from a man look like compared to a woman? And because really, you know, once we start asking questions about disease, it becomes very complicated if we don't have a a very rich map that we can kind of pull out the differences between patients. Because liver disease impacts children differently than it impacts adults. You know, little kids' livers are not just mini adult livers. You know, so what we want to understand is really as much as we can about the liver and use that to guide different therapies. We also obviously want to really get into liver disease and understand how the, the cell populations that appear in liver disease, how they can be manipulated. And some of that actually involves going back to the drawing board and find different ways to tease out tissue from diseased liver. For example, if you have something called cirrhosis, it is scarring of the liver. And within those cirrhotic tissues, those little scars, it's very hard to pull cells out. So we're finding ways to pull those cells out when they're, they're not as easy to tease apart. We're also trying to find out whether the placement of those cells within the liver is important. So, you know, say, for example, a cell is found in the healthy liver and diseased liver, but it's in the wrong place in the diseased liver. And we know that even though the liver is made up of lots of repeating units, there is quite a bit of division of labor within the liver. And so we can look kind of at where these cells are found within the liver. We obviously really want to understand, you know, diseases like liver cancer, primary sclerosis and cholangitis. These are diseases that are very severe and that, you know, really there's not a lot known about how these diseases develop and how they can be treated. And so we're doing exactly what you described earlier, you know, imposing disease maps on healthy maps and understanding, you know, maybe we can manipulate these different populations of cells to change a diseased liver into a healthy liver. Well, Dr. Sonia McParland, thank you for sharing your discovery and breakthrough with us and continued success. Thank you for having me. Dr. McParland's research is made possible in part thanks to generous donor support. If you'd like to contribute to this groundbreaking medical research, please go to www.tgwhf, that's tgwhf.ca forward slash podcast. For more on the podcast, go to our website, www.behindthebreakthrough.ca and let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you. That's a wrap for this edition of Behind the Breakthrough, the podcast all about groundbreaking medical research and the people behind it at the University Health Network in Toronto, Canada's largest research and teaching hospital. I'm your host, Christian Cote. 
Thanks for listening.